It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. CFO ratings for Labor Day weekend are through the roof. The riders can't figure out a way to find the end zone, and Montreal goes off in Ottawa. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. Welcome to the podcast. Mark's Labor Day weekend is now history. Although we didn't get games coming down to the uh, final minutes, we were entertained, I would say. Yeah, it was a great weekend of football. Uh, A few surprises here and there. Some teams stuck to what they were best at, and all in all, it was really enjoyable and entertaining to watch. You can take the whole weekend watching those games. Uh, it's, it's fun to be able to do that and to talk and banter, and, and the excitement is building now towards the end of the season. Relatively speaking, we're having about the same number of games post-Labor Day weekend that we normally would. It's just the games in front of it that are cut in half. And as it stands right now, the West first place has four wins last place has one win a couple of plays here and there and that would be all different i think the east is even more so we've got three teams i believe at two and two and ottawa at one and three so nobody's really jumped out to take control of that east division Um, as we kind of expected going into labor day weekend saskatchewan and winnipeg were fighting for first place that continues it looks like winnipeg got the upper hand but anything can happen and close that gap back up pretty quick it sure appeared that the offenses are starting to click, at least for some of the teams. There's other teams that certainly struggled this week, but uh, certainly some of the offenses seem to be starting to click, and after six weeks, you'd expect that. Let's start with the opener on Friday night. The Alouettes go into Ottawa and light up the Red Blacks defense, first team to do so this year, 51-29. Vernon Adams, 18-23, 288. Not bad, but four touchdown passes. That's what was missing. Of course, Eugene Lewis... Five catches, 120 yards, and two TDs. And Jake Wenicke, seven catches, 118 yards, two TDs. So he had a couple of weapons that really lit it up. And let's not forget, Almondo Sewell found the end zone with a rushing touchdown as well. <laughs> Something you don't often see. It's great. All those years in Edmonton, he never got the chance. You know, this game, uh, finally you saw Montreal. We talked about this all year, Montreal. When are they going to get it together? And finally you saw Montreal making the plays. Uh, Adams was able to connect with his receivers. He was able to hit the mid-range to, to long passes very accurately. And uh, that, that certainly changed the game. They were able to open it up. And, you know, here I was last week saying Ottawa's defense has played relatively well. That certainly didn't appear to be the case here. They, they struggled. Ottawa's defense has given up a lot of yards. A lot of yards, but they hadn't given up touchdowns. Montreal found that crack in the door and went flying right through it. It was really solid all around, I think, for Montreal's offense. Vernon Adams, he didn't throw a lot of passes. He was 18 for 23, 78% completion rate, but he also threw four touchdowns. And William Stanback had 112 yards rushing. They were really firing on all cylinders. Vernon Adams himself had seven carries for 35 yards. They really kind of did what they wanted out there on offense, Ottawa didn't have an answer. Now, the interesting thing on the other side of the ball, Matt Nichols came out pretty flat, two completions for 40 yards, and then Dominic Davis came in and was quite impressive in trying his best to keep Ottawa in that game. Unfortunately, he just couldn't go drive for drive against Adams, and the game got away from them a bit. 
the knock against him last year was that he struggled to control the ball and have some ball security. And, and certainly, you know, while he made a couple touchdowns, he did throw a few interceptions up too. It seemed that he, he, the one where he drilled it out, out in a short pass and it was tipped up, uh, you know, he's got to be a little more careful and put some touch on the ball. The thing is, if you get first team reps, you're going to improve upon that. And if you have a coach that's confident in your ability, that helps too. 23-33, 291 for Davis. Two TDs, as you mentioned, two interceptions. But Matt Nichols had the team for three and a half games. Red Blacks in 40 possessions prior to Friday night had scored but one touchdown offensively. They scored more touchdowns in the final two and a half quarters of that game than they had all season. That's kind of scary. It is. They've been somewhat futile on offense, but I, I think there's there's something to build upon here when you finally hit the end zone. It, it seemed like the team started to play a little bit harder. They realized, hey, we've got a chance. And I think what Davis brought is obviously what Nichols has been missing. He just hasn't seemed to have that arm and the accuracy so far. So I think it's probably Dominic Davis moving forward if I'm the coach. I would agree with that 100%. I think Davis brings a couple of things. He definitely has the stronger arm right now than Nichols. We know Matt Nichols has been battling some injuries and doesn't have the zip on the ball. Not that he was known as a, a gunslinging quarterback ever in his career anyway. And Davis has some scrambling ability that is going to help Ottawa's offense in the long run as well. Uh, he did rush a bit more. He had eight carries for 38 yards as well. So he can he can scramble and get himself out of trouble as long as he doesn't feel rushed and throw the bad pass. I think that's a, a key in, in Davis's development. And if Lapolis can nurture that out of him, that's going to go a long way to get Ottawa back into things. The way that Nichols was brought out of the game and Lapolis went and shook his hand, it was almost like an indication that, okay, we've tried, you've had your chance. It's clear you're not capable because the shoulder just isn't there. It's time to move on. And I'm wondering now, we already know that Dominique Davis is getting first-team reps with Ottawa. I wonder if that's the last we see of Nichols as a starter and maybe as a quarterback in this league. Because if you can't recover and you can't throw, what are you going to do with him? might be a prudent move on behalf of the team to save some salary and, and take a look at someone else and develop. I mean, he, he, Matt Nichols is towards the end of his career, and he certainly... His arm does not appear to be right at this point in time. So whether that's needing more time or whether it's just he's done, we'll, we'll find out. It could be chronic, and that's the scary part. And that's really tough for anybody to go through. We go to Sunday, and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers go into Regina and take on the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, a sold-out Mosaic Stadium. Nearly one million people tune in to watch the game. However, they don't get to see much. The Riders put up nothing in the second half and lose 23-8. to Zach Kolaris, former Rough Rider, went 19-27, of 245. A touchdown and interception, but his counterpart on the other side, Cody Fajardo, 23-39, 211 and three interceptions. Didn't get an offensive touchdown for the Rough Riders, that is two straight games now where the Rough Riders have struggled mightily against the Blue Bombers on offense, if you go back to the 2019 West Final. Well, there aren't many teams out there who have done well recently against the Blue Bombers' defense either. They're averaging less than 13 points a game against right now uh, through the first five games of the season, and they average 13 points against through the three playoff games in 2019. So that defense 
is clicking. Um, I know we've talked about on this podcast in the past, their secondary is probably the weak point on that defense. Uh, but uh, Alexander had two picks. They had three interceptions in total. And so those uh, those DBs played a good game as well. They did. And what stood out for me is not just the play of the defensive line. They certainly dominated the riders. Cody Fajardo was left running all day long. He took a lot of tough hits as well. And uh, But I, I would flip it as well. Their offensive line also seemed to dominate. They, they gave lots of time for Caleros to make some throws as the game went on. You could see them getting stronger and stronger where Saskatchewan seemed to peter out. If Winnipeg is going to succeed, though, they have to definitely get better at receiver. Now, they had some great catches in this game. But again, Darvin Adams is the number one guy you got to shut down. And then after that... The Bombers did leave some points out there as well. You speak of Adams. I mean, when he when he lost the ball, great play by Ed Ganey to punch the ball out. But, but not long after that, you had a great long pass that could have gone for a touchdown to Dembski as well that was dropped. So, I mean, they left some plays out there. Um, I think this score could have been even worse than it was. And one thing that stood out for me for Cody Fajardo, as you mentioned, Don, he did complete 23 of 39 passes, crept up to 59%. But for a long time in that game, I think through three quarters, he had completed less than 50% of his passes. So a lot of those yards came late when the Bombers were kind of hold, playing back a little bit and not wanting to give up the deep one. And it allowed Fajardo to get a few more completions. But he, in my opinion, did not look sharp from the moment that Adam Big Hill laid him out with a bone-crunching hit. He had a hard time settling back in. And uh, the rest of the Bombers' defense did a great job of giving him fits throughout the rest of the day. Fajardo seemed to have a lot of almost tunnel vision when it came to reading defenses and a couple of the big names on the Bombers defense really stepped up as I mentioned Brandon Alexander had two interceptions Adam Big Hill was a menace out there all day long Willie Jefferson did what Willie Jefferson does he was making tackles he was tipping passes knocking things down and uh, those guys really that middle of the Bombers defense I think were were really stout uh, Jeff Coat got a sack late in the game as well so the guys that you expected to make plays for Winnipeg on defense really did their job. Monday, we had two big games again in the uh, schedule with the Argonauts in Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats. Tiger Cats with max attendance of 15,000, 32 to 19 Hamilton. They uh, kept Arbuckle under control, 18 to 32 for 207, one TD, two picks. By comparison, Dane Evans goes 21 to 29. For 248 and two touchdowns. That Evans run offense looks a lot crisper. I think the last couple of weeks have ended any talk of a quarterback controversy in Hamilton right now. Dane Evans is the starting quarterback for the Hamilton Ticats. I know Jeremiah Masoli has some injury issues right now. I believe if Evans keeps doing what he's doing, regardless of when Mazzoli's ready to play, this is Evans' team now. I absolutely agree. Evans has played well, and the team seems to be playing behind him. 2-0 with him as a starter, and uh, he certainly showed last year that he has the ability to do it, and I think the team trusts him. So, uh, to me, this is Evans' team. I agree. Orlando Starnhauer has Tim Hortons Field has been great to him. He's undefeated there, and he's also undefeated against the Toronto Argonauts in his young coaching career. And the Tiger Cats are on quite a Labor Day winning streak as well. I believe this was nine in a row for Hamilton against Toronto on Labor Day. So they've really built something. And kudos to, to Bob Young for handing out free beers. I think that's a great way to engage the fans. Um, we, we've talked a lot about how the CFL needs to market itself. 
really attract a younger generation, get some new fans involved. And a beer with the boss was a great way to do it. So good on good on them for really making a fun environment in Hamilton. That crowd seemed very engaged. I think the players fed off of it. Uh, you could just tell that for Hamilton, they were the last team really to get home. You could just see the excitement there, and it, it made that game certainly fun. And we know that's one of the key cornerstones for Labor Day weekend. And uh, definitely next year, if you're a Hamilton fan, you're going to want to be in that crowd when you watch what went on. Well, you still have a few chances this year because they've got a lot of home dates. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's right. The rest of them can be very exciting. But Labor Day is always that big game. This really puts it out there to the rest of the teams. With the Ticats winning, Hamilton now is the team that you want to chase. Well, maybe. I mean, let's not forget Vernon Adams and the Montreal Alouettes put up over 50 points this week too, and that's what we were expecting to see out of them. So um, I wouldn't say right now that Hamilton's running away with it. We've got a couple of weeks coming up to see what happens, but uh, you're right. They certainly looked like the Hamilton Ticats that we were expecting to see. Uh, but I believe Montreal is right where we, we thought they would be as well. Hamilton has taken out both Montreal and Toronto so far. Well, the other thing that I would throw in there is Toronto has also played very well against Winnipeg. Their, off, their offense and defensive lines dominated those lines that we just said dominated the riders. So, I mean, uh, if, if Toronto can ever get it together, they might still be in the running. Toronto can get it together. The thing that they haven't had and most of the Eastern teams haven't had is home dates. And I think it's going to really set them up for the rest of the season. The teams that are going to be in big trouble are the Stampeders and the Rough Riders. The prevalence of those uh, interdivisional games as we move forward as well, right? We've seen a lot of the teams on the road, and, and now we're moving back to some interdivisional games. And I think that's going to make it really exciting as we watch this. I guess my takeaway from the Hamilton game is what is it going to take to get Brandon Banks going? Is there something going on there that we don't know about? Because, again, three catches out of six... Uh, targets and 45 yards something's off there and I don't quite know what it is Um, he he certainly isn't the explosive player that I was anticipating seeing this year and for Hamilton to truly take control of the east they need to get him up and going and we've talked earlier as well the Ticats are still missing a couple of other key receivers so maybe that takes some pressure off of them when when they get back but something doesn't seem right for Speedy B he did rush five times in the football game, so he did touch the ball a lot. He also returned kicks. I think they are struggling to figure out what to, to do with him because they're, they are trapped. They need a little bit more explosive attack on offense, and with Devere Posey still out and Braylon Addison still out, those are two guys they were really counting on to help out. Once they're back in the fold, I think then you start to see the Ticats offense sort of shift gears. Final game of the weekend, the COVID-riddled Edmonton Elks have enough bodies to put on a field, and they play the Calgary Stampeders in McMahon Stadium. Edmonton Elks with a 32-20 win over the Calgary Stampeders. They snap a long losing streak in Calgary. Henry Burris, ironically, was a part of both Monday games where the home team had last lost both in Hamilton and in Calgary prior to yesterday, or Monday, I should say. Trevor Harris looked good again, 398 yards passing, 31 of 41, four touchdowns, no picks. Jake Mayer, 29-46, 328, and a touchdown. Mayer has done everything possible to get that offense up and down the field. He did not get a lot of help from his receivers. A lot of balls were put on the ground. 
This was the Trevor Harris. I guess we can kind of put to bed the red zone struggles and the inability to find the end zone for one week anyway. He beat Calgary for the first time in his career as well. He, they were the one team he had not yet registered a win against. So to go into Calgary on the road on Labor Day and get the win was a big, big day for Trevor Harris. As you mentioned, Jake Mayer, nothing to be ashamed of. Again, it's a, a situation where a backup quarterback comes in for Calgary and does everything he can and kind of keeps them in it as best he can. We saw that out of Nick Arbuckle last year. We're seeing that out of Jake Mayer this year. And I think there's a bright future for him somewhere in the CFL. I think this week uh, was a pivotal game for Edmonton. It was a game coming out of the COVID controversy, if you will, uh, where, where they could have gone either way, but they seem to be galvanized by it. They seem to pull together. You heard them speak a little bit of their anger in terms of bringing it there, and they certainly channeled that anger into production on the field. They played a great game, and to be able to pull it out in that fourth quarter and, and really drive when they needed to to score was exciting to see. I find it interesting they had to channel anger because the anger had to be self-directed because it was their own teammates that were causing the problems. So I find that fascinating that they needed that kind of motivation. Well, I mean, many of the players spoke about the, the chatter around the league or others talking about this could do something to them. So I think it was not much as anger at the individual. Certainly that had the potential to blow things apart in the locker room, but it was more so what they perceived as negative talk about their team with COVID, that they were able to step up and, and channel that feeling towards the production we saw. Now, the real test will be to see how they play three games in seven days at the end of the season because of their COVID issues. So having one week off now to get everybody healthy and back into the lineup as best they could, you saw a motivated team come out and win. But there's uh, some redemption, I think, coming and, and some difficult times ahead for the Elks. So if they are truly going to be a contender, they've got a tough, tough finish to the season. And there's a lot of questions, I think, still to be answered there. Edmonton, don't forget, had about 17 days off between games. Calgary didn't have that luxury going into that football game. The Stampeders defense we have mentioned is the problem there. And again, it showed 480 yards of offense for Edmonton. Yeah, if, if the Stampeders are going to, uh, you know, bounce back from this, it's, it's got to start with both their defense. And, and I believe, you know, if Bo Levi Mitchell comes back, which we know he's on the sideline waiting, maybe he's going to be the spark that will be able to get them moving once again. For Calgary, it's, it's a different situation for them to be looking up at the rest of the division as opposed to looking down at them. I don't know what you can do in a COVID environment to affect quick change. That's the big thing, because if you pick up an NFL cast-off, say somebody on defensive line or a linebacker. What timeline are you looking at? We've talked a lot about the condensed season, a 14-game season. The Stampeders are now 1-4. If they were to run the table, which is highly unlikely, the best they're going to finish is 10-4, and four, which would probably be right in the hunt for first place. But now, in order to do that, they have to win out and win nine games in a row. So they have dug themselves into a hole. I had kind of thought at the beginning of the season that maybe the shine had come off of Calgary and they were a team on a bit of a decline. That surely indicates that way through the first five games of the season. But if if a team's going to turn it around, it's somebody like Calgary with Bo Levi Mitchell at the helm that can get them back competitive. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Booth reviews was a major topic in this past week. And I'm sure the CFL is going to be looking at that. If you point back to where this all began, Friday night, Red Blacks kicker Richie Leone was 
clobbered by a crackback block by Montreal's linebacker, Jermaine Grace. I'm sure that the league was now starting to think, and especially the officiating crews, okay, we got to be careful about this because these guys can't be sitting ducks as they come down the field. Well, Sunday, Blue Bombers kicker Mark, Mark Leggio gets hit by McKenna Henry, and it looked like he tripped over his own player, actually, but there was a roughing the kicker call, and the challenge was won, and the Rough Riders got what they wanted. Later that game, Nick Dembski appears to go offside, but the booth overrules. Then on Monday, Derek Wigan returns a Trevor Harris fumble for a touchdown. It's called back to a Sean Lemon offside, which was called on the field, but the booth did not overrule. And then later in that game, uh, during a Calgary punt return, Edmonton Jalen Tolliver was called for a chop block, but the booth reviewed and threw it out. This is, I think, the part of the problem. I think everyone is fine with booth reviews. We were under the impression that it was for placement, timing errors, turnovers, scores, or apprehended scores, and fouls on the quarterback. Those were the areas that they had jurisdiction. Now there's some confusion about the business with, especially the Tolliver block, a low block by a defender, and they overruled that. And is that overstepping the bounds? It wasn't the best week for the CFL on-field officials, certainly. And now with the booth reviews, everything is clear as mud, as you would say. Roughing the kicker flag on Mark Leggio was absolutely ridiculous. He obviously knew he was missing, coming up short on the field goal, took about three steps downfield because he actually is the type of kicker that is going to go get engaged in the play and gets a little shove on the shoulder and down he goes. And the the flag on that one came very late uh, from when that infraction happened as well. So good on the league for getting that one right. Uh, it is unusual that they had to, the, the Rough Riders had to challenge it to get it out overturned. Now that being said, earlier in that sequence, there was a potential roughing the passer call that Coach O'Shea challenged that was not it was upheld the decision on the field was there was no roughing the passer again that one seeing the replays must have been very close as well i don't know what the determining factor was in in calling that one off but it's a real tough way to go through a game when you're really relying on the booth to make those decisions certainly the referees have i think an incredibly tough job to do and when you've got a booth that's now overruling or or bringing some things in it, it makes the average fan who's watching the game who maybe doesn't understand the nuances of the rules question what's going on and why is this happening. I mean, it's supposed to be indisputable evidence that they see in those, let's go back to the offside call, certainly in the offside calls, indisputable evidence allows them to reverse that call or to call down on the line play where they're looking each game. In in this case, you know, certainly the the views that we as a viewer saw on television, it was hard to say that was indisputable in both that play as well as the one where Lemon was offside. Um, You know, those those were hard to see to the average fan. So maybe they have a different view. I don't know. I know we discussed this before just in a brief conversation, but they may have more access to different angles that we don't have that, that can show indisputable evidence. But for the average fan watching it, you start questioning what's going on and it makes the refs, I think, maybe even question what they're doing too because, hey, we're making a call and we're being overruled and there's a time and a place for that and there's a time and place for challenge, but it just seemed almost at the whim of the booth. 
And I know it's not. I know that's part of the rules, but that's certainly how the average fan may perceive it. I'm I'm 100% in favor of the booth over overruling when it comes to player safety. We talked about the Richard Leone crackback block, especially somebody like a kicker or quarterback. You have to do what you can to protect those guys. The kickers are out there for a handful of plays a game. They aren't the kind of guys that are going to run down and, and mix things up. Overprotective, on the other hand, and throwing a flag saying that Mark Leggio got roughed up by McKenna Henry, you're overcautious the other way. So, um, you know, like I said, it, it's good that they review and they do get it right. On an offside call, it's such a a close play. I mean, how many times does a receiver in a waggle appear to be offside and there's never review on a situation like that, except in this this Rough Riders-Bombers game? Well, there was the lemon... Okay, let's go back to this. The lemon situation, when he was called offside on the field, the booth allowed that to stand. In the Dembski situation, probably just as close the booth overturned the call on the field, which was offside against Winnipeg. I, I know it, we're, we're all human. We all interpret things differently. Certainly the officials in Toronto see something different than we do, and that's fine. When it's clear and indisputable, where does that line begin? How far back do you go before you get there? And that's, I think, where some of the confusion comes in. And especially when it, in the Tolliver play, where the flag was thrown, there was a little bit of confusion as to who got the penalty in the first place. It was announced incorrectly, which is fine. But when they got it announced, and then it was overturned by the booth, I don't understand why the booth was even involved. That was just a play in the middle of the field. I just don't think that that's their jurisprudence according to the letter of the law that I see for them. I think there are times where the game needs to be played, and there's a human element in the players. There's also a human element in the refs. Our refs overall will make great calls, and they may make 99.5% of the calls correctly in the course of a game. But when the plays are big plays that can change the outcome of the game, as happened in two occasions, at least on that one, those plays impact it and and make it even more crucial. So I I like the idea of leaving the refs to make some of those calls unless it truly is indisputable. If someone's two yards offside, I get that. Everyone's going to see that. But when it's so minutely... At least that's the way it appeared to us. You make that call, it seems like you're, you're nitpicking certain calls. I know people say, well, we're wasting our challenge flags when we have to throw against these types of calls. Well, that's why you have the challenge flag. It's when there's a mistake and you believe it's egregious enough to be caught by the booth, that's when you throw the flag. It doesn't matter what the mistake is, you're just calling it. We did go an awful long time without a challenge flag in Canadian football. So you're, you're right, Don. It's... It's there to be used, and it's there to be used on a play that you think is impactful enough that it's worth another look. And Pat raised an excellent point about if you continue to overrule from the booth, it's going to make referees and officials hesitant to throw flags in some some instances because they're afraid of making a mistake. And I love that, that you said there's a human element to it. Um, I've not refereed football games but other sports i've officiated over 200 games and mistakes do happen things happen so fast a blink of an eye split decision and to have that overruled is really tough unless it's a really important play that can affect the outcome of the game that's that's my take on when the booth should intervene um you know we we talk 
about the human element. You look at baseball, different umpires call a strike zone completely different. And pitchers and catchers need to learn how to pitch a game with a certain umpire. And I, I don't want to see that taken away by a robot either. I think that's um, the, the officials are there for a reason. We need to respect them, but make sure we get the big plays right. And if that means having another look, then that's what it's for. The one thing that I would like to see more from the on-field officials is to keep the whistle in the pocket on laterals or apparent laterals and apparent fumbles. Let it play out, and then you can always go up to the booth then. You've got that as your backer. Great point. Yes, 100%. There's too many times where a ball's been ruled an incomplete pass, and a guy scoops it and the whistle's blowing. And when you look at what happened, receiver gets two feet down, makes a turn, ball pops out, and it should have been a touchdown going the other way. Second down. Let's get into this week's football matchups. And these odds are powered by Bet Rego, and we thank them for that. As of Tuesday, the Tie Cats are minus 3.5 in Toronto. It's always tough to win back to back against the same team. This one, it was a, a really good game that kind of got away from Toronto a little bit in the second half. And, uh, you know, I, I expect a tight game, and I'm actually going the other way. I think Toronto comes back and wins the rematch at home this week. Um, it's, it's going to be a close one. I am picking the Argos this week as well. I think we've seen their line play much better than it did on the road in Hamilton. I think coming back home, they played extremely well against Winnipeg, and I expect we may see that again this week. So I'm expecting a bit of a bounce-back game here, and I think the Argos should be able to, to win this one. At home, Toronto needs to be favored. There was always this sort of argument that you, you get three points just by being the home team. And I think that should be enough for the Argonauts to cover and also win the game. Saturday, we have a triple header. We've got the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Winnipeg, then Calgary and Edmonton, and then Ottawa and BC to finish the trio. The uh, Rough Riders are plus 2.5 in Winnipeg. My gut feeling is that's really low. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, for, for me, this is a defining game for Saskatchewan. We're going to see if, if they are for real or if they're not. They've got to come up. Their lines have to play better. Cody Fajardo has to be protected. And if they're able to do that, this should be a good game. Having said that, I still think it's going to be a tough environment to go into Winnipeg and pull that one out. So I'm, I'm taking Winnipeg in this one. The Riders need somebody to step up and lead in going into Winnipeg into a hostile environment. I think one thing we saw from the Blue Bombers in Regina on Sunday was Willie Jefferson stepped up earlier that week, said we're going to go in there. Andrew Harris said we're going to put that, we're going to shut that crowd up. And they backed it up. They came in there loose. They were dancing in warm-ups. They were ready to go. For Saskatchewan, they need somebody to turn the tables and do that to Winnipeg. The The Bomber fans are going to be fired up. They're, they're coming off of a huge Labor Day win, which you don't see often for the Bombers to win in Regina. The Bombers are going to come into this one with a lot of confidence. The fans are going to be behind them. And unless somebody from the Rough Riders really takes control and, and is that strong vocal leader for them, I think it's going to be another Blue Bombers win. I spoke of the line play, but I guess the other thing that I think the Riders need to do to have any chance of winning is to establish some kind of running game. There really wasn't a running game. And when you're only running about, I think, 12% of the plays where they actually ran play action, what good is a play action play if you really don't have a run game to go to? 
Um, you know, the team's going to line up. And, and when you're playing the short passing game that they did in this last game, all it takes is Willie Jefferson's arms to hit the ball down once and it, you're punting. So uh, I think they have to establish a game where they can at least get five yards uh, on rushing plays that they do call. That wasn't happening last week. And I think from what I saw, they were really late getting the running game started. They really, the first, almost the first half, didn't really run the ball at all. And when they did, Powell looked pretty good. He had a couple of, of times where, where he made decent yardage on a first down run, and then they went away from it again. So the offense needs to figure that out, and, and the coordinator needs to run some more plays with Powell. He's a more than capable running back. And for some reason, they just kind of completely shied away. And then you're right, it, it gave the Bombers' defense a chance to settle in and and know that there wasn't much of a run threat. And uh, they wreaked havoc and gave Fajardo all he could handle and more. The last time the Rough Riders won in Winnipeg, Willie Jefferson was playing for the Rough Riders. Calgary and Edmonton is the middle of the uh, trifecta. And the Stampeders go into Edmonton as plus of. 0.5 dogs. This is really going to come down to who starts at quarterback for Calgary, and I think this line may change quite a bit based on that. Mayer hasn't been in Edmonton for the rematch. Bo Levi-Mitchell has. As Pat was alluding to in the first segment, with Mitchell at the helm, there's a lot more confidence in what's happening. Mayer, granted he's unbelievable at throwing 300 per game in his first three starts, but I don't know if the other team looks at him and is that intimidated. One of the game notes I made watching last week is that Calgary seems to be a quarterback uh, factory, and, and to see Mayer come out, he, he's really done well in his first three games. However, boldly by Mitchell is going to be able to, I think, have the confidence of the team, and if anyone's, if they have any chance of winning, he's going to have to step up for them to win. Right now I have the Elks. I guess if we hear Bo by mitchell is starting, I, I may take a look at that. But right now, I think the Elks should be able to sweep this series. I'm going the other way on this one, Pat. I think the Stampeders get their revenge. Uh, again, we talk about how difficult it is to win back-to-back in, in these games. And so uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are the one team I am picking to win them both back-to-back based on what I saw against Saskatchewan. But I, I think Bo by mitchell if healthy, plays and leads the Calgary Stampeders to victory against Edmonton. Big question mark for the Elks going into this game as we record. What's the uh, health status of their running back, James Wilder Jr.? Another question mark I have is if Brent Monson is going to retain his job as defensive coordinator, you better have an answer for what Edmonton did to you on Labor Day. Yeah, uh, Wilder didn't look good coming off the field, and I don't know enough about the ins and outs if it was... um, COVID fatigue as well. He looked like he was really struggling to breathe more than anything. And I'm just wondering if that's some some long-term effect of what happened to the Elks in general. He had a great game and it would be a shame to see him miss out on the return game. The CFL announced the rescheduling of the August 26th game against Toronto. Uh, That game canceled because Edmonton was having a COVID outbreak. It has been moved now. And so the revised schedule for the Elks is that they will play November the 13th in Regina, November 16th in Toronto, and November 19th in Vancouver. Toronto, for their part, will play November the 12th against Hamilton, and then, of course, 16th against Edmonton. Having said that, ouch. 
that's a lot of miles and a lot of games in a very short time for Edmonton. It's going to be a really tough stretch. As I mentioned earlier, that is the end of the season as well. So if they don't really get a stranglehold on a playoff spot and they're kind of coming down to the wire and battling with somebody else for one of those final spots, that's going to be a really tough stretch for them. And uh, it doesn't bode well. I would be more than impressed if they could go two and one in a short stretch like that. Uh, if they were to run the table, it would be truly incredible. They are able to put extra players on the field, and I think they're going to need it. Uh, you know, that that's a tough stretch of games, and, and I don't think you'll be fully recovered from the first one, even if you were to wait for the third one and put three within that time. Wow, they're going to be beat up. Well, look at the time zones. That's going to wreak havoc on the body. The As you mentioned, Pat, they do get to carry five extra players to allow for that. And if they don't have a first-round buy in the playoffs, let's say they do sneak in as the third-place team in the West. Now they're turning right back around on the road for a playoff game, too. It's a, a really tough go for them. There's a lot of optimism in Edmonton at the start of the year. They rebranded the, the Elks team was coming out, and a new coach, and a lot of positives. And unfortunately, they had a lot of other positives, which have set them back. And it's going to be a real, real struggle here at the end of the year. The final game of the night, the Ottawa Red Blacks are in British Columbia. The Lions coming off the bye, and the Red Blacks, and I think this is a fair line, plus 6.5. The interesting thing for me, the over-under is 41.5. I think that's a fair comment as well. Most of these games are hovering right around 40 points. I don't think we're going to see the light show that we saw from Montreal where somebody takes care of the over-under by themselves. I think Ottawa can come out one of two ways. Either they can fold and, and we'll see uh, BC potentially have that big breakout game or else they're going to step it up. They did look better with Davis in, in the game. I think his key, which we mentioned before, is, of course, ball protection. If he's able to protect the ball, this could be a very close game. The defense does have to step up. Montreal seemed to pick them apart, but I'm, I'm trusting that they're going to learn from that and be able to make some adjustments and, and come out and play like they did a few weeks ago against BC. In this case, I'm still going to take the Lions, I think they should be able to win this game. We'll get into how I think this is going to go when we talk about my fantasy picks this week. Um, I'll keep it short and sweet right now. I think BC gets the win. The Lions, their offensive line, are they going to be strong enough to keep Riley on his feet? If they do that, then the Lions are going to win. But if Riley is taking shot after shot after shot, I don't know. We have a change atop the leaderboard in our podcast pick'em. Much like the Baltimore Stallions of old, CFL America has jumped to the lead in our pick'em. He is now leading the pool at 32 points. Dini 13 has hung on to second place with 30 points overall. And our very own Snack Bites Pete has moved into third place, coming off a 2-2 two two week where both of my big point games came through for me and up to 28 points. Third down. As we go into fantasy, we just got to touch on the Elks a little bit more. They signed former Rough Rider All-Star Derek Moncrief, a linebacker who became available through the NFL cutdowns. That is a huge get for them. So let's get the picks this week. All right. Who are you, who are you looking at this week, Don? At quarterback? Yeah, I'm going to go with the Harrises. I'm going to go with Harris as my quarterback and Harris as my running back. As I alluded to earlier, you're going to see a little bit of a theme for me as I get further into this fantasy pick this week. 
at quarterback, Michael Riley, BC Lions, 8,900. I believe that what we saw from Ottawa last week is going to carry over a little bit and the BC Lions are going to get on track. Uh, couldn't afford to get all Lions on the roster, so I'm going all the way back across the country and taking John White the fourth as my running back from the Toronto Argonauts at 8,200. It's interesting because I, I I had two different lineups. I had to flip a coin between these, but I did settle on the Harris and Harris. So Don, you and I are same picks on this one. Receiver. Let's go, Pat. You know, I, I went with uh, Ellingson, thinking that I'm going to stack with Harris Ellingson, hopeful that he is the one who's going to have a big game. And uh, then I also picked uh, someone who didn't have a, a huge game, but had potential for a big game in Winnipeg. I've got Nick Dembski. Myself, I went with Brian Burnham from the Lions. 10100 again, I'm spending a lot of money on very few players. So I had to cut the salary somewhere, so I, I picked up Tolliver from the uh, Elks. Jalen Tolliver at 6300 Much like Brandon Banks, we haven't seen Brian Burnham get completely on track in a game yet this season. I think he's overdue. I can't believe with the struggles he's had, he's still at 10100 But I spent the coin. I've got Burnham this week. He's ready to break out. And on the other side of the field with the BC Lions, we know Lamar Durant is questionable with some injuries. So Lucky Whitehead once again steps up to be a big part of that offense. And compared to Burnham is a bargain at 7,500. So I'm going two receivers for the BC Lions this week. This is a big stack doing the hope, hope they play like Montreal, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay, Pat. Let's go flex. I do think BC is going to be doing fairly well. So I picked Deadman just like I did last week. He was good for 20 points. He's going to see a lot of returns, I think, and should hopefully have a few targets as well. 6,100, pardon me, 6,300 for Deadman. And then I had to go with a cheaper player. So I'm taking another uh, person who I'm hoping will do well, has done well the odd week in Hamilton. I've got Dunbar Jr., 3,900. Heath. I had to go bargain shopping a little bit here as well because I spent a lot at the top of the roster. So I am going Daniel Braverman from the Toronto Argonauts at 5,200 and matching him dollar for dollar, Drew Wolitarski from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I think Winnipeg gets that offense fired up a little bit more this week and uh, at a, a price like that, I need Wolitarski to get me a few points and I think he's good for it. Josh Huff, 6,500. That surprised me, actually, but so I went after that, Calgary Stampede receiver. And Braden Lennius from the Rough Riders at 3,300. I had to put somebody in there. Don't know if I trust the Rough Riders offense. That's the problem. It'll be interesting. Huff's an interesting pick, depending on who plays at quarterback, too. I think Jake Mayer has really liked him as a receiver. If Bo Levi Mitchell comes in, maybe he's looking a different direction. But I, uh, I wish you luck on that one. And uh, Linnaeus from Saskatchewan as well, really quiet this past weekend, but he has shown some flashes of brilliance. And at that price, I think he's worth the risk. Defense. I grabbed the Bombers. I, I mean, after last week, I thought they had an outstanding game. I, th I think at home they'll be able to play revved up once again. So I took the Bombers $4,800. Heath? Well, with BC scoring a lot of points on offense, in order to get them the ball, the BC Lions defense needs to step up. 4400 I believe that we are going to see Dominic Davis at starting quarterback for the Red Blacks. We talked a little bit about him being interception prone from time to time. So I'm counting on a couple of picks and that's what's going to get me the points with the Lions. Last week, I settled on the Montreal Alouettes defense. They came in at 14 points. They're not playing this week. 
I'm going to go with the Blue Bombers. Final thoughts, guys. Well, Heath mentioned it before. The the back-to-back weeks, it's tough to win two. I think we're going to see some closer games, I hope. Some offenses didn't get on track, while others did very well. And I'm, I'm thinking we'll see some closer games this week. The teams have now seen each other. Game plan specifically for what they saw. I think the games could be closer. I'm excited to watch. I'm ready for some more hard-hitting action. There was some animosity in the Labor Day Classics. And the one that's probably piqued my interest the most is Hamilton and Toronto. They were not getting along out there on the field at the end of the game. Things were getting ugly. Um, It's going to be hard-hitting and I think low-scoring in that one. I've seen some incredible banjo bowls go completely off the rails one way or the other. In my mind, hopefully that Winnipeg defense keeps doing what they're doing and uh, and keeps those Rough Riders in check as they're the one team, I think, that does sweep the back-to-back series. Saskatchewan, if they lose, be tied with one of or both of Edmonton and BC as of Sunday. If Winnipeg wins that game, they've swept the season series against the Riders. They own the road to first place. Huge game in Winnipeg if the Rough Riders have any designs on finishing first. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio. Worth watching.